Hi, I'm John Muster, and you are listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, the podcast that really slaps. But don't, I'll be here all week. Um, we talk about all things Disney and pop culture, and every week, Dave and myself, we take you behind the scenes from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, what's streaming, what's in theaters, what's going on in pop culture in the universe, or the multiverse of entertainment. I'm Al John Goh, musician, podcaster, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist fan. And you can email me, aljohn, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, cage fighter, artist, filmmaker, and author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, we've got a great show. We've got animator extraordinaire... Uh, storyboard artist and character designer Stephen E. Gordon, Man. and I got to tell you, this, this is going to be a, a great interview because he's one of the few people who went literally from high school right into the animation industry. He was 17 when he started working at Ralph Bakshi. I can't so, believe how young he was yeah, getting yeah. working there, and then of course continuing on doing a lot of the Marvel animation, which I love dearly. So yeah, and and he had a career at Disney feature animation. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that interview. It's going to be fantastic, man. That's great. And what is he now? Like twenty? <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I know. Really? <laughs> no, that's <laughs> like, awesome. Like us all. I know, like right? All. I know. It's crazy, right? So it's been a, a the world of entertainment has kind of been turned on its ear ever since the slap heard around the world. And uh, we appreciate you going back through the archives and checking out our John Musker shows, if you will, um, and give those a review as well. I mean, it was great having John on for two weeks, just sharing his immense you know, time working on Aladdin and his career early in CalArts. I mean, just an awesome set of podcasts we did there. Absolutely. And we're going to have him back again uh, for future uh, interviews on different films that he had a big hand in. So we're looking forward to that. Right on. And yeah, yeah. I have to tell you, uh, just so much going on in in the world. And I still managed to squeeze in uh, a little bit of content. Okay, yeah. Let's talk about what we've been streaming this week. I need to get a new sound effect for that. But in the meantime, <laughs> Dave, what womp, have you been womp, watching? Womp. <laughs> I know. <that's> my <laughs> fail that? horn. I don't have my way to hold on. Do I have a fail horn somewhere anyway? Yeah, hold on. Here it is. Here it is. I own it. I own it, Dave. <laughs> there you go. Hey, listen, uh, I, I went and saw Morbius in IMAX. Yes. Uh, and you know what? I, I don't don't pay any attention to uh, some of these reviewers and stuff like that. You know, look, I enjoyed the movie. It's a Marvel superhero movie. And in my mind, yes, 
there's some some story issues with the film, without question. But overlooking those story issues, I still enjoyed this movie. I really did. And um, I, you know, I was glad I saw it in my IMAX. You know, there's some spectacular uh, uh, cinematography and, and fight scenes and things like that. Um, I enjoyed it. Right on. Well, that that's good to know. I've heard mixed things about it and I actually have yet to see it. Um, we've been meaning to see it and it's just, it's been so crazy, but we definitely will. And I heard that, um, you know, from even the likes of some really good film critics that this is a great popcorn movie. Yeah. So there you, know, you go. Let's, and, let's and you know, all these people that have been sort of, you know, piling onto this movie with negative reviews and all kinds of stuff before it was even released because there were some issues while it was being made over at Sony. Uh, I don't think it was justified, quite frankly. I think you should give this movie a chance. And uh, and a lot of people did because it, it I think it did nearly 40 million at the box office last weekend. So yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, again, it was a good popcorn movie. I think that's a great way to describe it. There you go. The other thing I, I have to say is, uh, you know, I, on BritBox, which is part of my Prime subscription, um, I watched uh, three episodes and it was really like one season of uh, a um, show called Murder in Provence, uh, which I really enjoyed a lot. Um it stars Roger Allman uh, and Nancy Carroll. And uh, the, this, is, this is the description. Among the sun-drenched hills of southern France, <laughs> Chief Magistrate Anton Verlac and his spontaneous partner and lover, Marin Bonnet, uh, investigate the dark underbelly of the beautiful town of... I don't even know how to pronounce it. A-I-X. Okay. <laughs> Soul. <laughs> anyway, you know what? It, beautiful cinematography. Uh, really uh, enjoyed watching this. Uh, the Each episode's about an hour and a half. Uh, and uh, I liked it. If you like British television, uh, I'm sure you're going to like this uh, particular show. Um, it's a 2022 drop uh, on... Uh, uh, Britbox, Britbox uh, through 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 Prime. The other thing I watched, uh, I watched uh, two or three episodes of Hardy Boys season two on Hulu. There you go. Uh, and I, I'm enjoying that. I I watched all of season one last year, and I liked it a lot. And I'm also rewatching season four of Better Call Saul on Netflix because season five is going to drop and that's the final season to wrap up the, uh, uh, the, uh, the series. Nice. All right. Well, there you, uh, go. There you go, man. That's a lot. Uh, I can appreciate that. I can tell you that um, the rest of the seasons of the dropout um, that we talked about are up and running right now. So Amanda Siegfried is back on there playing Elizabeth Holmes of the uh, <laughs> the prestigious, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, company um, of, um, uh, what is that company, Dave? Th Theranos. Theranos. Theranos, yeah, well, a single drop of blood. Um, yeah, so whatever, single drop of blood. So the dropout is on there. And then there's another series uh, that we've also been watching on Hulu uh, the girl, the girl from Plainville. Thank you. You see, my wife is in the background. Kristen, you get a you get a golden star. So, uh, Ellie Fanning uh, is in this uh, this show, and it is insane. The girl from Plainville, 
and I'll give you the boilerplate on it. It is on Hulu. It's inspired by the true story of Michelle Carter's unprecedented texting suicide case. Explores Carter's relationship with Conrad Roy III and the events that led to his death and later her conviction of involuntary manslaughter. It's uh, drama-filled. It's uh, all kinds of crazy, and Ellie Fanning delivers because she's, you know. So there you go. Those are the two series uh, we're in, and I'm glad that my wife decided to pop in and stick her head through and tell me about this show. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. All right. All right. So here we are. Uh, we're in the throes now of what is Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Dave comes with a ban hammer. Will wow. Smith, you are now banished for 10 years from the Oscars. <laughs> what is up with that? Yeah, the, this this just broke on Friday. Uh, today, the Board of Governors convened a meeting to discuss how best to respond to Will Smith's actions at the Oscars. In addition to accepting his resignation, the board has decided for a period of 10 years from April 8th, 2022, Mr. Smith shall not be permitted to attend any Academy events or programs in person or virtually, including but not limited to the Academy Awards. Now, now, honestly, Al John, I have to tell you, if you or I walked up on the stage and smacked uh, Chris Rock yes. the way Will Smith did, do you think we would be banned from the uh, Oscars for 10 years or would it be a lifetime ban as well as incarceration? I think uh, you would be excommunicated, right? That's the term, right? You'd be Everybody would turn their back on you in a big circle and you'd be forced to walk the long hall of shame out the door, right? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the only the only thing that uh, I think should have been doled out was uh, for him to be barred from the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Sciences for life, mm. because if this was a sound editor, uh, a cinematographer, a costumer, a makeup artist that did this, they would have been banned for life. He really so, set he set he set back everything that we're trying to do in in being a more understanding people and I say this for humanity he set hmm. us back like 10 years you know he he did but at, at its essence it's one human being assaulting another of human course being, of course it you is. know and and this 10 year ban just once again galvanizes the double standard in uh Hollywood land yeah well there you go well do you, okay so in your opinion your hot take is will smith damage goods now is anyone going to touch him in terms of acting for the next well probably for the next couple of years it looks like all of his projects I, have been put on hold but i mean do you see a career yeah, left for him pa pa paramount just uh dropped the project that he was going to be in there and uh netflix has put back burnered some projects which may just disappear i don't know what apple's going to do they've been quiet on the emancipation project mm. that will smith was you know starring and, and really was like it was going to be a, a you know a uh, Oscar vehicle for him. Uh, so I, I mean I think he's going to be damaged goods for a while. Yeah. I, you know, look, how do you come back from this? I mean, you, you know, look, everybody everybody should have the opportunity to uh, uh, make amends, sure, and, and try and come back. You know, but 
you know, how, how do you come back from this kind of a thing? You got to disappear for a while. Yep. Let's see how he lays low. You know, people have often, you know, people have a comeback story. Maybe this is one of them. Only time will tell. Uh, It happened for many others who had uh, some serious issues, you know, and I could say Mel Gibson was one of them, you know? Yeah. You know, so Mel Gibson, Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson. There's been a lot of different things. I mean, we'll, we'll just have to see, but Hollywood does. If, if they love controversy, they love a comeback story equally, if not more so. So we'll, yeah, we'll see. I, I agree with you on that. Yep. And, and as I alluded to in that statement from the Academy, uh, Will Smith did tender his resignation uh, last week. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, all of the statements he's put out, I think are disingenuous because I don't believe he's written any of them. I think he's just had his high priced uh, publicist uh, doing all the damage control for him. Yeah, I don't think we'll see him star in Aladdin to the live action Boogaloo. Anytime no, soon. I, I, I don't think so. No, I don't think no. so. Uh, speaking of more Disney, uh, you see, I, I'm trying to do the segue here. Uh, oh Ron DeSantis is in the news saying Disney crossed a line again with the with that don't say gay bill and company never uh, called the legislative leader about the bill. And, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, it looks like is going to be doing lobbying uh, for some interesting things in regarding uh, Disney and how it self-governs itself in the state of Florida. Well, you know, uh, I, I don't know how many people know this, but Walt Disney World, uh, you know, when when Walt uh, and his brother Roy O uh, bought all of that land down in Orlando in the 60s, uh, they were able to form the the Reedy Creek. I think it's the Reedy Creek Special District, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it, essentially it's their own municipality. Mm hmm. You know, and they they kind of govern themselves and they put in all the infrastructure for for the different parks and all the resort hotels and everything and the development of that property. And that's in jeopardy now because of all of the 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 mishandling of this uh, this bill down in Florida. And, And I have to say, it's amazing how the Walt Disney Company was able to not just piss off one side, but piss off both sides. <laughs> I mean, boy, that is sheer talent, isn't it, Al John? Uh-huh. <laughs> yep, yep. You gotta you gotta work doubly as hard to take off both sides of the coin there. You know, and it's gonna be a shame uh, if somehow this Reedy Creek uh, district gets either disbanded or revoked or whatever they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've had that for fifty five years. Mm-hmm. 55 years. Yeah. They have their you own know? little town there with people that yeah. live on property. That's the, like the state minimum, but that law hasn't been, I guess that self-governing uh, way about the, the, the district hasn't changed yeah. since they, they bought and started yeah. that territory. I mean, that's interesting stuff. Yeah. I, I was very surprised to see that in the news, that that was something that they might, you know, uh, use against the company. Yeah. It's a shame. It really is. None of this should have happened. Nope. 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 Well, something that is also interesting and breaking news as of today, we're recording this dancing with the stars moves to a new home on Disney. Plus this fall, the fan favorite show is receiving a two season pickup and will be the first live series to exclusively debut on the streaming service. That's news because uh, it's celebrating now an impressive 30 seasons on ABC. What do you say about something like this? It's a big move. 
Yeah, I, it's a major move. I I was actually kind of surprised to see this one because it, it's made its home at ABC, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and like you said, fan favorite. But wow, I mean, are, are they moving this to Disney Plus in order to, again, uh, continue to build uh, subscribers? You would think so. Yeah. Um, you would think so. It's an interesting move. I feel like shows like Dancing with the Stars and The Bachelor are kind of anchors in the ABC programming lineup. So to do something like this uh, is interesting. And I don't know if it's because maybe it they see it's time for it to kind of move on and, and kind of transition into this new platform, but I guess we'll just have to see. Uh, Well, you know, it kind of says to me that they're obviously putting an emphasis on the streaming platform at the uh, detriment of uh, the ABC network. Well, uh, curiously enough, uh, as I speak about the ratings in this press release, it says during its fall season in 2021, ABC's Dancing with the Stars ranked among the top five unscripted series with this adult demo 18 to 49 so clearly it's doing really well so i guess they're just doubling down let's get those subscriber base uh, built uh, built up some more so with that said disney plus is also putting a brand new show kind of called the quest on disney plus dave are you familiar with larping no what is larping live (laughs) (laughs) okay you know in the tv show hawkeye on disney plus where he visits a bunch of these costumers that that dress up in the medieval times and all that yes okay that's live action role-playing larping okay so you call them larpers larpers okay so this is what this is right so this series pits eight teenagers against each other in a reality competition looking like it's straight out of harry potter Right. So you call to mind that kind of medieval Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter fantasy world. They do these kind of quests in order to gain uh, to gain certain items and from, you know, from, uh, you know, going up against some kind of big wizard and such. Now, this show was actually originally aired in 2014, but with adults rather than teens. And I was one of the adults that interviewed those people in ABC for my old our old podcast. And I loved the show. I thought it was hilarious. First of all, I'm the de- target demo, right? And I thought it was hilarious because once again, uh, these were people that dressed up in these medieval costumes. They learned to work together. So it's like Survivor, but with knights in shining armor, right? Men and Got women. it. Got it. Okay. LARPers. So, That's LARPers. A, new, a new term for me. You okay. See, I'm, 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 I'm helping you out, Dave. That's you what are, I do. You are. You're, 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 you're making me hip again. I don't know about that. I don't know if LARPing was ever hip. Um, you saw the people in Hawkeye, so you, you tell me. So you can decide for yourself when the quest premieres on Disney Plus on May 11th. Just a few weeks away. I can't wait to check that one. Dave, this is right up your alley because we're talking about HBO Max and all of the global streaming with this three-horse race top talking about uh, uh, what's going on with HBO Max and the battle for supremacy, if you will. Well, and that's what that's what's going on here. I mean, as we've said in the past, uh, the streaming platforms are in an arms race. They're trying to make as much content as possible to attract as uh, as diverse and large an audience as they possibly can. 
And part of this is actually um, uh, rolling out globally. Uh, so as we reported uh, last week's show, uh, you know, Disney Plus was uh, rolling out uh, in uh, some African countries and other European countries and other territories around the world. Uh, so HBO Max is doing the same thing. They're rolling out uh, on a global basis. I think um, with HBO Max and Warner Media merging, getting ready, they've absorbed Discovery Plus into their portfolio with HBO. I I feel like Hulu is only a matter of time before Hulu gets broken up and Disney gets all their assets and Disney Plus will be the prevailing streaming service. You know, for 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 yeah. for that well, kind I mean, of content. You know, Di- yeah, but D- Disney already owns I, w- better than seventy percent of Hulu. Yeah. So so I I I think you know they already control it. Right. Uh, so but I why, think it's yeah. only a, only a matter of time before they they buy up the the rest of it and own it a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, for my my thing is why have two streaming services that provide you know relatively the same content if they're starting to stream live content like Dancing with the Stars. There's no need to mince the brands. I mean, you know, Hulu's a great brand by itself, but Disney Disney is the biggest brand, you know, so. Yeah, I but I mean, them. I know what you're saying. They should just put Hulu as one of the uh, choices along with uh, Disney, Pixar, Star Wars, Marvel. Yeah, or, uh, or, or, or Nat Geo. Right. You know? Well, they have the technology now, so I, I think it's just all yeah. the programming just needs to morph over there with their right. live stuff. So uh, we'll see how that, that happens. Um, something you know, that I could have actually positioned right after the, the whole DeSantis thing was actually Disney in their own properties there is going to expand solar power production with two new solar arrays in Florida. So this yeah. is something that they've always done. They've always tried to work the green component in there. And yep. uh, here they have a more expansion of that. Yeah, no, I think this is a great story. And also, you know, they have a tremendous amount of solar panels on top of uh, a lot of these attractions and large uh, venue buildings that are on the property. So so this is just further uh, adding to uh, uh, their commitment to uh, green energy. It says 40% of the energy used at Walt Disney World is coming uh, from these existing solar arrays. So yeah. that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty impressive when you think about it. So that's it, good. It really Kudos is. Kudos to them. Yeah. Uh, Dave, are you a fan of better call Saul? I am a huge fan. As I mentioned earlier, I'm rewatching uh, season four in preparation for the drop of season five, uh-huh. the wrap up of the series. But I have to tell you, I love Bob Odenkirk. Uh, yeah. he, he not only was a great writer, he's a great actor. Uh, and I was really thrilled to see that he's going to be uh, doing a new series, uh, which is uh, the adaption of Richard Russo's novel, Straight man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, he's he's going to, you know, he's finishing up Better Call Saul and he's going to go right into a new series uh, on AMC. And I and I think it's fantastic. Man, he's never going to be out of work. That guy. Yeah. yeah I, and, I, you know, I, I, it's nice that he's uh, obviously recovered from that uh, heart attack he had on set. And mm-hmm. so I hope he's really taking care of himself. I, I love uh, I love watching him. He's a great. He really is a, a, a terrific actor. And if you haven't watched Better Call Saul, I mean, this is a great series. It's really fantastic. Right on. You know, right on. He's, he's, uh, he's good. He's great. 
Well, in sadder news, uh, the industry mourns the loss of yet another legend, Estelle Harris. The nagging Miss Costanza on Seinfeld passes away at the age of 93. This late-blooming actress with the iconic high-pitched voice was also Mrs. Potato Head in the Toy Story films. Dave, uh, did you ever work with Estelle? No, I never did. But, you know, I have to tell you what a wonderful life she had. She was 93. And uh, I thought what was terrific when I read her obituary was that she really started out late in life. She was only I think she was about 50 when she first started uh, to do some professional gigs. Uh, And, you know, while she was raising a family, uh, she did some community theater and, you know, little things like that. But it wasn't until she was 50 that she launched into this uh, professional acting career. Isn't that amazing? You know, it's like a whole it's, second life. fantastic. You know, yeah. I mean, she she had a very full life and uh, uh, leaves behind a, a terrific body of work and, and just great characterizations, you know? Absolutely. I mean, she was just amazing in Seinfeld. So much great comedy there. She was also in the Disney Channel series, The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. So, you know, she's been there and she's had that tie in with Disney as well. So, uh, and of course, Toy Story. How can we forget Toy Story? So, yeah. uh, once again, you will be missed, but you leave behind so much great, uh, fun laughs. Estelle, may you rest in peace and our condolences to her legions of fans and her family. But what a great life. And now we are going to lean into our interview with animator extraordinaire Steve E. Gordon right here on Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. And Al John, once again, I, I don't know how we keep doing it. We keep getting the best and the greatest guests on the Skull Rock Podcast. And this week we are talking to animator, character designer, sequence director, uh, incredible artist, Stephen E. Gordon. Uh, and I have to tell you all, I've known Stephen probably, it's got to be, what, 35, 40 years yeah, I'd say it's probably close to 40 years now. Probably 40 years. Well, Stephen, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thank you. And as you can hear, our studio audience always goes wild when we introduce our guests. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I want to dive right in because when I uh, was looking at what you had worked on over the years, I noticed that you worked on Ralph Bakshi's The Lord of the Rings. And by my calculation, it looks like you were 18, but you said to me right before we, we started the show, you were, you were 17. How did that come about? Well, it, it, the story, the way I tell the story is um, when I was in high school, I was in my, you know, I was majoring in art, obviously. And um, uh, my art teacher saw this ad in the trade papers looking for portfolio submissions. She didn't know what it was or anything else, but she thought this is a great way for him to get some feedback on his portfolio since I was starting to put my portfolio together to go to uh, uh, art center and whatnot and send it out. So she thought great way to get, you know, a review or something. And plus she was hoping it would take me down a peg or two because, you know, typically I was, I was the kid in high school that was the big art, you know, person and stuff, you know, every high school has got one and that was me then. So she was helping to deflate me a little bit. And unfortunately for her, but I guess fortunately for me, uh, she was completely wrong on both values. 
she, no one gives a portfolio review on a submission like that. They either we accepted or rejected, as you know, and I got the job. So it did not deflate me. <laughs> now you say you got the job. Did did Ralph look at your portfolio, or was have, it like uh, like a supervising animator, or no? I have to assume it was him. Uh, from what I gather, he he ran a very uh, uh, tight ship. And it was a, it was a lean organization, right? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty. I mean, Lord of the Rings was the biggest crew he ever had. I mean, by the end of it, it was it encompassed hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah, to get it done, and it was also one of the more expensive films he ever made, um, especially in the day. You know, it wasn't a Disney budget necessarily, but it was out there stuff so um for, for, so, an, for an independent animated oh absolutely uh, yeah i mean you yeah. gotta remember this is the time of the aristocats and uh uh and hannah barbera was about it yeah exactly know, i think yeah. fox and the hound maybe but fox and the hound was probably in early production at that yeah. point yeah. yeah so you know there wasn't much going on i mean he you know the character designer was dale bear I mean, he'd left Disney and went over there to try to uh, stretch it a little bit. And he was the lead animator and character designer. And I mean, he had several of uh, Milt's older assistants working there as animators and stuff. So, you know, he, he kind of uh, put together a pretty big crew. And by the end of it, it was massive because he, you know, if you're familiar with the film. Yeah, they he, did a lot. They did a lot of rotoscoping, right? Well, rotoscoping, but also they did what he was calling roto photo, which was you, you shoot the live action, you go to a high con on it. But to get that to work, someone had to go in and white out all the backgrounds and stuff because a lot of the uh, fighting stuff was shot in Spain at the old uh, El Cid castle and stuff. So you know he had hundreds of uh, young art students just out of art, you know, kids out of art school doing this, you know, even Tim Burton was there whiting out backgrounds with a white, you know, with a brush and white paint. And wow. Stuff. So there, there were all types of people there doing that. Um, so, he, you know, he had uh, hundreds and hundreds. So, you know, I, I have to assume he looked at every portfolio or, you know, maybe someone, you know, went through and kind of did a preview and then gave him the best of whatever was there or whatever. But, you know, a lot of people that he hired at that time ended up staying in the business. A lot of background artists, a lot of artists, animators and stuff, you know, not necessarily, not a lot of them stayed in it as animators, but, you know, they, they stayed in the business in one form or another. So. so let me ask you this. Did you work on Lord of the Rings and then go to Art Center or did you never go to Art Center? Did you just stay in the I business? I never went to Art Center. That, so that was my intent is to work on Lord of the Rings, make some money, and, yeah. go to, and then continue on with Art Center. I mean, so what happened at high, in high school, because I was, you know, this was my first year, first uh, semester of senior, of me being a senior in high school. And when I got the job offer, the uh, my art teacher worked with the counselors and stuff and the rest of the school to set it up so that I could finish high school in adult classes and take the job because they looked at the salary and, you know, they were kind of, you know, the jaws dropped a little bit because I was making more at that point than they were. Wow. So, so they wow. did everything in their power to help me get through high school. And so I finished, you know, uh, the classes I needed through adult education in the evenings and stuff and then worked uh, for Ralph during the day. So, now, so. now you worked on Lord of the Rings. Did you go right on to American Pop then and start developing American Pop with him, or was there a gap? Um, no, I, 
let's see. Uh, oh boy. Um, I, I think, I guess we did roll over sort of onto American pop. But not with was, the not with the full crew. No, Obviously, not, he had yeah. a big layoff, right? Yeah, and I think you know I was one of the people because at that point I had come up quite a bit in the ranks. You know, he had hired me to do scut work. You know, we, everyone that was being hired at that point was doing scut work initially, which was at the time drawing uh, fangs and glowing red eyes on orcs and crap like that on the right. photo stuff. Yeah, and then. Um, he, when uh, one of the other animators needed an in-betweener and I happened to be available because I'd finished my work and they moved me up to his in-betweener and they taught me how to in-between. And then uh, from there, they threw a, um, like this hundred foot scene of uh, horses and Gandalf and Aragorn riding through the night sky and, you know, stuff. So they gave that to me and told me to do that you know, in between, in betweenings and stuff. So, wow. so by the, but by the end of the movie, I actually managed to get an animator's credit. I mean, it was rotoscoping for the most part, but still, it was, uh, and that, but that was your first credit. Yeah. So I managed to get an animator's credit in my first film. So I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I still got it. <laughs> but it was amazing. I mean, that, that's pretty fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so and, then and he, he, uh, kept me on. I mean, there might've been a little break or whatever. And he kept me on to roll me over on an American pop and to do some test work and stuff. So that's probably what happened next. I, and, and can you talk a little bit about American Pop? Because I, I actually really like this film. I saw it when it was first released in the theaters. Um, I was still uh, uh, in school at Cal Arts. Uh, and I, I, I think this is an underrated movie that doesn't get talked about very much. I agree. I think it... it if you watch it, I mean, this is some junk in it, but there's some real fun stuff. And, and it's an interesting take on American music. I mean, he's kind of doing the history of American music. And frankly, I think that someone at some point needs to take that thing and kind of blow it up and make it a bigger version of that, you know, make yeah. it, because I think it's a real interesting take, you know, from the shadows in uh, Russia or the Ukraine or whatever to, uh, uh, California, you know, I mean, he, he covers most of the uh, American music movements I, I, and stuff. And, and, it's, and it's an immigrant story. Yeah, it really, exactly. right, yeah. right. It's a, it's a, it's a family, it's a family uh, story that that is, you know, it starts out with with these music, you know, this this family and the and a musician uh, uh, immigrating to New York and uh, having children and children's children and all yeah. of that, I mean, right? He, I, yeah, he, he kind of came up with his own version of these Jewish characters, but they kind of weaved in between. Uh, and Gershwin, there's a Gershwin type character. Yeah. And then he gives birth to someone who gives birth to a Bob Dylan character. And, you know, and so it's kind of the the whole Jewish American music, you know, thing yeah. going on. So it's yeah, very yeah. interesting. Um, and, and how long did you work on that for? Boy. Uh, <laughs> it's got to be, it's got to be a couple of years. If, if Lord of the Rings came out in 1978 and American Pop was released in 81. So I'm imagining you probably worked on it for a few years, right? Yeah. I, I guess it was a couple of years. That was a much leaner crew for a long time. Yeah. And plus the, the mandate at that point was to really, really follow the rotoscope, which 
due to my uh, earlier uh, work on Lord of the Rings. I Because on Lord of the Rings, even though it looks like there's a lot of tight rotoscope, there's, there's a lot of not tight rotoscope. Yeah. And you know, the better the art animator, the artist, you could get, deviate from it. And I just couldn't find it in me to uh, do nothing but trace the photo. So I ended up pissing off uh, uh, the character designer who was kind of in charge of all that, who wanted it exactly like that. And so I ended up at some point getting shuffled to uh, uh, minor characters like uh, Jimi Hendrix and yeah. stuff that they didn't care if he was off rotoscope and whatnot. In fact, he you know, needed to be so. Yeah, so. yeah, and, and a- after American Pop, I uh, uh, you st- you still did some work with him because you you were on Fire and Ice. Yeah, well, first I went from there. There was an actual big lay long layoff, or relatively, and I, you know, didn't want to just sit around the apartment. Um, so I went and worked at Filmation as a layout artist, and that was kind of fun. It was just for a short period on. Uh, on the Tarzans or uh, mostly uh, Lone Ranger stuff. Yeah. I got, got to share an office with Dave Stevens. I don't know if you know who he is. The uh, Rocketeer. Yeah, I remember the name. Yeah. 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 He yeah, created yeah. the Rocketeer and uh, a couple other comic book artists and stuff because they were hiring comic book artists a lot sure. to do stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, Tarzan, Lone Ranger, and yeah. Zorro. I mean, that lends itself to. Yeah, especially in layout. Yeah. yeah you, and you really have to know human anatomy for those ki- uh, those kinds of characters. Yeah. Oh, getting back to uh, the whole going to art center after I, I my, that was my plan is that I'd work a little while at uh, Ralph's. And then when that was all done, I was like, oh, okay, that was a fun summer job or whatever. And then I'd go to art center, but uh, you know, I started dating um, uh, shortly, a, a daughter of one of the uh, animators. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that to her and stuff. And she said, you're never going to leave. No one gets out of here. No <laughs> one gets out of the animation. The money is too good and, the, and it's too consistent. And I thought, yeah. And she was right. Let me ask you this because I, I know, I know a handful of people who never went to art school, uh, but you got, you got, I think, probably the best art training working uh, on these films uh, and TV shows early on in your career, because you were, you were learning from people who had been in the industry for, for a long time. Yeah. I mean, that to me, that's the, or at least back then, that was the best way to learn. Nowadays you actually need schooling to learn yeah. all the CG and all that sure. stuff. But sure. But, but do you regret not going to art center? No, not really. I Good. mean, I, you know, there are times when I think, gee, I'd love to be able to know more about painting and, you know, illustration type of stuff that I just kind of fake now if I need to. But, <laughs> you know, as far as the animation business, I, you know, I, I feel that I've, still know as much as I need to know and hopefully we'll make it through uh, till retirement without having to have had to take school to learn, learn anything new. Yeah. So. And, and, and so you did a little stint at uh, filmation, yeah. uh, but you went back to Ralph to do fire and ice, which yeah. was, it uh, was that uh, was Frank Frazetta involved in that. He was he, right. He was. Yeah. yeah. He was the inspiration for it. Essentially Ralph had called him and said, I want to do a movie with you. And they worked it out and then they ended up getting, uh, I don't know if you know who Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway are. They're, they're comic book writers. Um, 
You know, Roy Thomas used to be like the person underneath Stan Lee. I think I think Al, Al John knows these names more than okay. I do. Okay. Well, I, I think I, I think they're really cool. I mean, the fact that you've worked, um, you know, with Frazetta, which, by the way, everybody, uh, everybody in my circle, we love Mo- Molly Hatchet. So yeah. the first thing that comes to you is that Berserker kind of yeah. Conan the Barbarian Frazetta. That's what he was sure. known for. And the fact that you were working there and it looks like Thomas Kincaid may have worked in there. You know, the, the, he, he the, was, he was the, the back, one of the background artists. And so was uh, James Gurney. Yeah. I mean, with him, Donotopia. Yep. All that, the, all that kind of stuff in that genre of fantasy and, and sci-fi is obviously stuff you've built your career on. But I think for those of us that love that stuff, you know, cause I was a big fan of, of that work and I was a big fan of, uh, you know, that style, including, um, you know, films that like, um, uh, like heavy metal, you know, because we're, you know, I was into heavy metal, of course, as I am now with guitar and of course animation. So, uh, it seems like a really cool project with everybody you've worked with uh, on that. It's really, it neat. was, I mean, it was, especially in retrospect, it's great to be able to say, gee, yeah, here's a photo of me with Frank Rosetta sitting at my desk and I'm <laughs> looking over his shoulder and, you know, yeah. uh, you know, all those things there, you know, it's great. I mean, not many people, you know, people that I know say, oh, I met him. It's like, yeah, but I worked with them. Yeah. So yeah. Kind of yeah. I mean, I, that, that is pretty awesome though. It really is. And, uh, and, and of course, Frank Frazetta is one of the legends, uh, uh, in, in the sort of comic po- comic book world. And in illustration, he's yeah. like the grandfather or the godfather or whatever of, uh, paperback, you know, illustration, the fantasy and sword and sorcery type of stuff. It's like yeah, the, the voluptuous women and the muscular men yeah, it's uh, like, yeah. wielding swords. You yeah. Know. yeah, Conan kind of, a uh, you know, uh, uh, what is it that? Um, uh, Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian style. He, yeah, yeah he, well, he breathed, his covers breathed life into that property. Yes. Yeah. Uh, up until then, it was just kind of languishing a little bit. And then he started doing the covers for those Conan books. And uh, suddenly they started selling like crazy. Yeah, and it became yeah. A, a hot property and stuff. You know, if it wasn't for Frank Fazetta, even though the movies and stuff didn't look like his stuff, if it hadn't been for him doing those covers, no one would have hired Schwarzenegger to play Conan in a bit. You know, right? Just, right. You know, it's just all connected. Yeah, and then, so, and, then, yeah. and then our audience would also know the fact that he did like John Carter from Mars. You know, that kind of yeah, he did of a lot of stuff. a lot of book covers for the Burroughs yeah. uh, Corporation and. Uh, you know, you know, anything fantasy related. He was the go-to guy for a long time mm. for uh, anything fantasy. And, uh, and because he would, well, his wife was really smart. She wouldn't, she would make sure everything landed back in their hands. In those days, I don't know if you know what the, how it worked in illustration, but you do an illustration for a book cover, the publisher would keep it. And she worked it out where she, they got them all back, which gave them, the ability to resell them in any format or whatever and stuff. So she was very smart. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, um, when, when you were on, uh, you finished fire and ice, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, did you go right to Disney or, uh, was there, a, a, a another project that you worked well, on? Well, the way it worked is after I finished fire and ice and I was the key animation director on fire and ice. And that was, you know, I wish I'd known more when I was doing that and I would have been better had it possibly. But anyways, after that project, I was looking around for something to do. I'd gotten married. I'd met my wife at Filmation previously. Okay. My future wife. And so we had gotten married and we had a kid while we were working on fire and ice or I was working on fire and ice. And um, from there I uh, went to uh, Rick Reiner 
productions. Oh, I re- yeah, I remember Rick Reiner. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I had been hired to do layout, character layout on his uh, Day for Eeyore movie, I think. And, um, I, you know, and I was trying to remember exactly how this all worked out, but I was only there for about a week when I got a call from Disney. And I don't know if I'd submitted my portfolio or someone had told them about me. Yeah. Yeah. Because I got a call from them and I know Ed Hansen had to make the call and he was not happy, but they wanted to hire me. He he did not like having to hire an animator off the street. Why do do you feel that way? Why, Why did he feel that way? Well, because I, they had a system where you came in as a lowly in-betweener or something and right. worked with Eric Larson for a few years or whatever it was, and you slowly in-betweened and assisted. and then. So, so that was really about uh, philosophically at Disney, they wanted to sort of mold their own animators yeah. as, as opposed to hiring animators who had been working in the industry. Yeah, and I think I I may be wrong, but I think I may have been the first one, at least during that time period, that they hired off the street. And then after that, they started hiring a lot of other people because, uh, you know, Black Cauldron was a difficult production and needed any hands they could find. Well, I, you know, I, I was one of the last people hired into the effects department at the low, low level position of an in-betweener. Uh, and I, I look, I, I still have a special place in my heart for that movie, yeah. you know, and I, and Al John knows this because uh, we, we've talked about it from time to time. To me, you know, I think Black Cauldron uh, is a film that our listeners should uh, should try and take a look at uh, on Disney+. Plus. Absolutely. You know, it's got its flaws, but so does every other film, especially during that time period. And what it could have been a wonderful film, but it just turned out to be a, okay, it's not bad. You know, I can see what you're trying to do, but you didn't achieve it. But I mean, there's some really good stuff in there. I I still think the whole, uh, quite think, uh, chase, uh, that Phil did with, um, Guy Vasilovich doing the layout, Phil Nibbling. Yeah, Phil Nibbling. Yeah, I think that thing is still stands out as one of the best action sequences I've seen, especially in two D. I think Phil would agree with you on that. I'm sure he probably would. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but Black Cauldron, uh, how how did you feel like you integrated into the Disney system? Did you integrate fairly quickly? Well, it it took a while because I did not know that there was. uh, that weird weirdness about being there and not having gone to Cal Arts and not uh, having been okay. part of the, you know, I mean, I, I mean, um, you know, so there was a lot of uh, weirdness that I didn't realize was there, you know, until later it's like, God, why, why, why is my assistant act like a turd or, you know, or, you know, and plus I've never had an assistant before. Okay. And, you know, back at Bakshi's, you did everything. You, you took the drawing to clean up before it moved on the in-between. Sometimes you in-between it if you had to. So you, know? you so back, back she was more of a scrappy production. Yeah. Where was, every you, man you did, you did whatever you had to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Disney was great because it's like, oh, you're giving me time to slow the hell down. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I don't have to rush this out. You know, this is great. And I, then I get to look at it with rough in-betweens and fix it after that fact. And, you know, there's nothing like that. I mean, I've always said the reason why most of Disney animation looks so good is because they have the time to redo it and redo it and redo it. Yeah. Refine it. it, Yeah. yeah. It makes a big difference in almost every other production. 
I've ever worked on. It's like, man, if you have a chance to redo a scene twice, that's a lot. But yeah. at Disney, you just keep going until they finally say, oh, okay, that's enough. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Did, uh, did you do any work with uh, 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 Eric Larson when you came in? No, they just sat me down and started handing me scenes. Wow. I mean, you know, I went to uh, some of his lectures, I guess, but you know, mostly they were about uh, Christmas Carol at that point. And, you know, they, they had no bearing on what I was doing at that time, but you know, I mean, I'd worked with Andreas and Phil and uh, several other, the key animators and stuff. And at a certain point they started giving me the action stuff, which I think was initially their intent. I mean, I, I think they initially hired me because Mike Plug was drawing, designing a lot of the henchmen. And Mike Plug was from Lord of the Rings as well. And um, they thought I could probably match him. And so I started doing a lot of henchmen and whatnot. And then I started doing Taryn and I long way racing through the uh, castle trying to escape. And then from there, uh, I think they tossed me a Horn King scene. And then from there, I became kind of like the main guy or one of the main guys on the Horn King. So yeah. you know, I ended up doing his death scene, yeah. most of it, so... Which is pretty fantastic, I think, in that yeah. movie. Um, uh, and then, uh, and obviously they kept you on because at the end of Black Cauldron, there was a major layoff. Yeah, I, I stayed on. And I, in fact, they gave me a huge salary bump, gave me the, uh, what was it, silver pass or whatever, and the credit card and everything else. It was like, yeah. you know, you know, it suddenly reached, you know, heights, you know. Yeah, at that time, it was just, I think it was a thousand dollars a week. It's like, ooh, you know. Hey, like, you know, yeah. I, I, hey, for, for mid 1980s, that was, yeah. pretty, that wasn't chump change. No, of course. No, it's, yeah. it definitely seemed like a big deal then. And, uh, and so they moved me on to, uh, uh, Dave Michener's crew on, uh, Mouse Detective. Yeah. And I worked with him for a while on Mouse Detective and kind of jumped around a little bit on that film. And, and you, you were with us when we all moved off the studio lot yeah, over to over Street. to the yeah. Flower Street building. Yeah, I was. Yeah, uh, I got yeah. got my own office at that point and got my movie. Uh, you know, the whole schmear. You know. Yeah. And, and and then uh, uh, what what did you do on Great Mouse Detective? You talk a little bit about that and your yeah. I, I mostly worked on the the tavern or the bar sequence. I think. Uh huh. Um, you know where they were in disguise. Um, uh, it wasn't a ton of stuff that I recall, but you know, that, you know, I'd have to kind of go through the film and kind of watch it and see, you know, there may be other scenes that here and there, but you know, you know, eventually I, uh, from there I got shifted over. They started developing, um, Oliver and, um, they asked me to help develop that. So I was working on that with Pete Young and, uh, George Scribner and, um, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Vance and Vance, know, Vance, Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of those people and stuff. So that was kind of my first four way into feature storyboarding up until then I'd been kind of freelancing as a storyboard artist for TV stuff and whatnot. And, and um, uh, from great mouse detective, you, you left Disney. I, I thought you were there longer that. I, yeah, no, I, I was, I, well, at that point, I don't know if you recall, but the rumors swirling around after they, uh, came in excuse me, was that you know Frank Wells wanted to shut it down 
Right. Yeah. I, I mean, there there was talk early on because that 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 was uh, at the end of Black Cauldron. Just for our listeners' sake, there was a, the management changeout uh, at Disney. Uh, this is when Michael Eisner, Frank Wells came in, and then you know they brought in people like Jeffrey Katzenberg and other executives that had been working over at Paramount. Uh, and, and it was really sort of the, the, the beginning of, uh, you know, the reawakening of Disney, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but, but yes, uh, in those very early days of the new management regime, it they, bad. yeah, they, they were, they were talking about shutting down, uh, Disney animation all, all completely, but that didn't happen because of Roy Disney. Right. Our friend Roy E. Disney was really the godfather of animation and he, he was the one that uh, basically said uh, if animation was well, the Walt Disney Company would be well. Yeah. Uh, so, If he was only able to have made that argument uh, after the shutdown 2D, that would have been nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but 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 that those rumors were flying around. Yeah, I mean, so what did you do? Well, you know, that, you know, because, you know, Wells, I guess, had made the big announcement that, you know, because the, Dalmatians, I think, had come out been reissued at that point and it made as much as Cauldron, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Or, or maybe Mouse Detective or something. I forget exactly which film was. And he said, why are we making new films? You know, so yeah. a lot of us at that point were looking for exit strategies. And because of my, I wasn't a Disney person, I was able to easily uh, find a way out and ended up uh, going to do other things. You know, I uh, started uh, doing freelance for uh, so, or not freelance, but started working on other things that, like I did the gem credits, the dancing gem. You know, I don't know if you know gem and the holograms. Oh yes, yeah. You know, <laughs> a lot of the dancing. You know, I started becoming the dancing uh, rotoscope. You know, guy, go-to guy. The the so, dancing rotoscope animation dude. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, so, they they so they loved you, Stephen, because of your outrageous art style. That's right. Well, and also I, I could figure it out. I could, you know, push it and poke it and make it work better than what they were getting. And so I started doing a lot of that type of stuff. And uh, then, uh, you know, there were some small jobs all over the place and whatnot. And eventually I ended up uh, being a director for Ralph on the Mighty Mouse Adventures. I, and I was going to ask you about this because if I recall correctly, was the Mighty, the new My, uh, Adventures of Mighty Mouse, was this, uh, was John Chris Felucci uh, yeah, involved that, with that? That was and, John Kay stuff. You know, that was John Kay working with Bakshi, right? Basically. And they brought, they, they knew, they had a bunch of his guys and stuff directing who never directed or anything else and whatnot. So Ralph trying to um, avoid a complete, you know, uh, ship turning upside down on him, uh, hired me and another guy, the guy who I originally started in between for uh, back on Lord of the Rings, Bruce Woodside, to kind of. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know. Bruce. Yeah, I, I remember Bruce Woodside. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. He was in effects on Calder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, to direct some of the episodes, so at least Ralph would have those competently in hand and not 
you know, a mess made of them because, you know, John Kay stuff was starting to go over schedule and over budget and everything else. So we were kind of the uh, pinch hitters to try to give them something in hand. So I did that. I think I did four episodes, something like that. I don't remember. But, um, or maybe it was two episodes per, or two shows per episode or something. I don't remember. And so, you know, I just started, from there, just started kind of kicking around, you know, going from um, animation job to animation job. Yeah, and you basically have consistently worked. I mean, you've worked for very, like, everybody in town. I mean, it's really amazing. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's amazing (laughs) when I I look at your, your, you know, the credits you have, and it's like Warner Brothers and Hallmark and, you know, uh, DreamWorks, and uh, I mean, it goes on and on. And, yeah. and it's not just animation; it's it's storyboarding and character design and directing. Yeah, yeah. I, I started to kind of uh, flesh out my resume there, uh, mainly because you, I've always and I tell this to any young uh, artist or whatever who wants to get in the business is make sure you don't focus just on one thing because it'll be difficult to keep working if that's all you do. Right. The more abilities and um, skills you have and more different types of jobs you can apply for, the better off you'll be. So now that's uh, what I was doing. And so you were, you were doing a a lot of different television uh, shows, uh, but then you hooked back up with Rick, Rick, Rich, Rick, Rick, Rich. I, I always yeah. have trouble saying yeah. it's Rick Rich, uh, yes. who is actually one of the directors on the Black Cauldron. Right. And and so can you talk a little bit about your period? Because you, you spent quite a bit of time with him. Yeah, I did. I, he was uh, trying to find funding for a feature. But while he was doing that, he started doing these direct videos and that, you know, this was actually VHS videos back in the right, day. Right, right, yeah. And, you know, he was doing them for this uh, group out in Salt Lake or whatever. And, you know, some of them were Mormon videos. Some of them were New Testament videos. Some of them were historical things with George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and stuff. Yeah. And eventually those same people, they were making so much money off of these videos, these home videos, that they decided to fund a film, which was The Swan Princess. right. And um, was that the only feature that he did or was that it was the only big theatrical feature? Right. OK, because he did. He did a couple others that were just direct to DVD or, right. or direct to VHS yeah, yes, or whatever. True. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in fact, Swan, he's still doing Swan Princess videos. Is he really? Videos. Yeah, I think it's up to 12. Wow. So, that's like, that's like land before time. I think there's 14 much, yeah. so, of those. <laughs> I don't know where they sell these things or whatever, but or yeah. who's buying them, but apparently someone must be. Sony is bankrolling these videos and they've been doing them now for, you know, ever since the first one, essentially. And, so. and but let me ask you this, how, how has the industry shifted for you with the streaming uh, streaming business and, and and the way content is being consumed now, right? Because the VHS and DVDs are pretty much non-existent. I mean, they still yeah. do some DVDs, but that that market is a fraction of what it used to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always a guarantee at one point that you know this film or this series that you work on will become popular enough and we'll make more money on DVD or video cassettes or whatever. And that's not the case anymore, but you know, it, I, 
I've still haven't had any serious problems finding work, whether it's on streaming shows or whatever. I mean, I know that a lot of people have complained that they're not getting paid as well or whatnot, but I haven't found that to be the case. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, usual... I was going to say the animation business has been incredibly robust through the yes. pandemic yeah, because oh, yeah. everybody's been able to work from home. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we rolled right over into it without any hiccups or whatever. And, and especially me, because I'd always been freelancing. Yeah. Once I got home from work or whatever, I'd always sit down at my desk in the evenings and put in another four hours or whatever. So I already had the complete setup and ready to go and whatnot. In fact, way back on Swan Princess, I worked mostly from home. I was the animation director, the character designer and key animator. And I worked, I'd go in maybe once or twice a week to review footage. Uh-huh. But essentially, I was working from home, and you know, I had an Amiga that I was using, uh, you know, bootleg, you know, Jerry rigged Amiga set up to test my own scenes and whatnot. And so, you know, I've been working from home for decades and stuff before this happened. So, right, which makes it it made it a lot easier, I think, uh, yeah. for a lot of people that yeah, were absolutely. in that position. Um, but I, I, I'm curious uh, on uh, doing the um, uh, the Bible videos and the Book of Mormon and the Swan Princess. There's a lot of human characters in there. Was that something that you, do you enjoy that, and do you gravitate to those kinds of projects where there's much more in the way of human characters? Well, I mean, I, I am able to go back and forth between funny animals and humans, but I, I've got a handle on anatomy and, you know, I'm a draftsman, so I, I can definitely handle human characters more than some of the uh, other animators and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, having also worked through rotoscope and stuff, that kind of gives you a leg up a little bit and stuff and sure. teaches you more and stuff. Um you know, it's, you know, like when I was, uh, you know, after Swamp Princess, I was hired to direct um, on X-Men Evolution, which is a very popular TV series that's now on Disney Plus, which uh, reimagined the X-Men as teenagers and stuff. And I did all the character designs on that show as well as directed it. That was awesome. And, and- and, uh, you know, uh, on those types of, uh, of films, uh, you also, I, I'm looking at this and I'm, I'm thinking you did Swan Princess. Did you go right on to Anastasia? Was that, that was that Bluth? Yeah, it was Bluth. I, I really wasn't on that so much as I, I freelanced on it. Oh, okay. And you know, they would send me scenes and I would do them and I'd, I'd fight with the Irish guys over the phone and, <laughs> um, you know, um, but, well, let me ask you this: Didn't didn't Bluth at that at, at that point didn't they have an uh, LA office set up? I, if they did, I wasn't aware of it. I think what you might be thinking of is on Titan AE when that was initially um, started. It was called Planet Ice, and there was right. a, and there was an LA office here that I actually worked on. I was one of the storyboard artists on that part. And, and Pomeroy was there, John Pomeroy, right? No, he wasn't there. Mike Plug was, um, uh, this is when Art Vitello was the director. It was oh, not, okay. it was not going to be uh, a blue project. It was, blue was busy working on finishing Anastasia. And, um, I think he was trying to get them to, uh, green light another film he wanted to do. And they, I think they found there were so many problems, I think with what was happening on planet ice 
I'd already left at that point, but I think they uh, told him that, um, you know, you're going to finish this film for us. Yeah. They took it over to Arizona with them and stuff. And right. Yeah. I think they took a couple of storyboard artists, maybe Mike Plug and uh, Hank Tucker. I don't know if you know him. Uh, I don't remember Hank. No, I remember Mike. Yeah. Uh, But mostly it was done by Bluth at that point. Is that your dog whining? Yes, it is. Sorry about that. Poor guy. <laughs> I was wondering. I, I was hearing some uh, some tapping or clicking or something. Yeah. And it sounded she like. She obnoxious. I was kind of hoping she wouldn't, but, you know. <laughs> it happens. So let, let, let me ask you this, Steve. Looking back on your career, and I know your career is still robust and still going forward, but looking back on everything you've done, how how do you feel the industry has changed since you got in when you first start, you know, got hired at 17 with Ralph Bakshi uh, on Lord of the Rings? How do you think the the business has evolved? Has it expanded? Is there more uh, studios, more work today than ever before or what? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, back in the day when I was first hired, there was Disney, there's Hanna-Barbera and, you know, other places like Ruby Spears and Filmation. And actually, that was pretty much it. And even that was a pretty intermittent. It was only Disney was the only uh, long term employer at that point. Yeah, I, so, I mean, because because Hanna Barbera, Filmation, and Ruby Spears at the time would always have their yearly layoff, right? Right, right where everybody was, was out of work seasonal. for yeah. for three months, and then they'd come back for the next season. And then Ralph was the outlier because he was the sort of scrappy productions of right. you know he he he'd get money together from somebody, Not uh, much, from, yeah. you know, to to do like an American Pop or yeah. uh, Fire and Ice. But but those were uh, those were sort of like I said, scrappy. Yeah, and that that was pretty much the landscape back in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Even, I mean, I think obviously what uh, Jeffrey and I put a lot of it on Jeffrey is that what he did with Disney it kind of changed everything for a long time, and then when he left and opened DreamWorks, it blew it up even further. Yeah, and it started you know like well, it's not just Disney. Because at that point, even then, only Disney could have a hit. You know, uh, if it wasn't a Disney film, because we, at the time, you know, like a Swan Prince, it was released in the theaters, and uh, Jeffrey undercut it by releasing the same week a reissue of Lion King. Oh, is that what he did? Yeah, he, he wanted uh, to make sure that no, in case he'd heard enough good things about Swan Princess, that he wanted to make sure that no one was going to... Uh, walk on in his path, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, we probably wouldn't have anyway, but he, he killed it, you know? And back in those days, I don't know if you know how theaters used to work or they still do to some degrees, you know, first weeks a film is in a theater. Most of the money goes to the distributor. It doesn't go to the theaters. Right. And the longer a film is in theaters, that ratio starts to shift towards the theaters. Yeah. So obviously when Lion King was reissued, it had been out for so long that, they made a lot of money by having Lion King in their theaters as opposed to Swamp Princess. So back in the day, there were no computers. It was just tabulation, you know, print out a ticket. So, you know, we kept hearing stories about how people bought a ticket for Swamp Princess and were holding a Lion King ticket and stuff. You know, there's a lot of that machination going on. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, what can you do? Yeah. Right? No, there's nothing. I mean, yeah. but like I said, I, I hope Jeffrey, um, 
and on responsible for blowing up this whole industry. I think without Jeffrey, I don't think it would be what it is today. Right. Because now virtually every studio has yeah. some sort of animation uh, group, you know, whether and it be Sony or Warner yeah. Brothers or Netflix. I mean, and that's a yeah. lot due to uh, the CG. And I'm yeah. not, a, I, I would prefer 2D myself, yeah. but I recognize the fact that whatever, for whatever reason, the audience has preferred CG right. and every, you know, the majority of CG films are hits, regardless of where they come from. Right, right. And so every studio is now scrambling to have a CG animation crew. And, you know, whereas yeah. you know, before it used to just be Disney who could do it you know, with 2D and stuff. So. Sure, sure. And, and where, do you, where do you see the business going? I mean, uh, what, what's your sense on uh, the future of animation? Do you say, I, I already have heard rumblings of a 2D feature that's going to be in production in yeah. town. And yeah, I'm, I've sure heard you, I'm sure you've yes. heard about it yeah, as no, well. Yeah, I'm trying to get on if I can. <laughs> It'd be nice. <laughs> you know, I was on Space Jam too, which was nice. I was doing 2D animation again, first time in decades on Space Jam too. And I, so I also did... Uh, uh, animation, 2D animation for Andreas on his uh, short. Oh, I I didn't know that. That yeah. that's the short he's been working on. Yeah, oh, very. Yeah. That, that's I I was over at his house uh, before the pandemic, uh, and I and he showed me a little bit of uh, what he was doing. Uh, so that that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that he's brought on a few few friends, old, yeah. few old friends. Yeah, I mean we hadn't talked in decades probably, but he was hoping that I could still do it. And I was hoping I could still do it. And it came back very easily. So, which is nice. Yeah. And, and he was doing it very traditional. He wanted paper, yes. pencil and paper, which is fine. But, you know, on Space Jam, I was using um, the Harmony. Yeah. Centique and Harmony. Yeah. Tune Boone's Harmony. And so that was okay. I mean, I prefer paper because it's more tactile and, Sure. It's easier to figure out. I mean, there's a lot of glitching that goes on with, you know, the program, the animation program, and you have to have an IT crew to make sure that, hey, why isn't this working? It worked yesterday. <laughs> and they have to go into the nodes and all this other stuff and try to figure it out. But, you know, I'd be glad to do 2D again. It was kind of refreshing not having to worry about story or directing or yeah. stuff like that to just sit there and give me my scene and let me just go from A to B on it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's nice having the variety. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's great advice that you give to people is, is that you don't want to focus in on just one thing. You want to be able to do several different things and do those several different things really well. Yeah, exactly. You, yeah. You don't want to be one of these people that, you know, before they, you get good on something, you move on to something else. You, but you, if you get good on it, then now you can focus on something else and get good at that. Yeah. So, so. What what do you what do you see in the future? What are you going to be working on? What are you uh, well, right now? I'm and, just and, working on a TV series for DreamWorks, uh-huh. which, uh, you know, and I'm looking around to see what else is out there. I'm also doing some uh, character designs for Marvel. Nice, um, which I can't talk about. Of course not. Of course <laughs> yeah. not. Yeah, you know, 
as uh, much as we'd like to pry it out yeah. of you and have you give us an exclusive. Oh, uh, they will send a, a, a hitman over to my house. And <laughs> They've already uh, been in my house, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty rigorous. Yeah, it's, but but yeah. let me ask you something. Do you, do you see yourself retiring from the business? I'm hoping to in a couple of years or sooner. You, you do know, you, are you really looking forward to retiring or well, you, do yes you want to no, continue your, you know, keeping a finger in the pie? Well, I, what I would do is I think retire and that way I don't have to take any job that comes along. Right. And just pick and choose because I, I can also, you know, you know, you know, I've always worked for non-union places too and such. So I could, you know, do that. And, you know, I've got a corporation if I need to find, run money through and whatnot, sure. so, but yeah, you know, I probably would still do some work or even do comics, which I've done a little bit of now and stuff too. And, you know, and, just keep busy. And, and have you uh, have you done any art outside of what you do for a living with animation? Uh, do you paint on the side? Do you do sculpture? Do you, is there anything like that that you do for pleasure? Well, well, not just holy pleasure. I mean, it's usually like an outside thing. Like I did a series of online comics for uh, Edgar S. Burroughs because I've always been a fan and they were looking for people to do these online comics. And I did that for a couple of years. And now I'm doing a, a series of comics um, for what you know, the guy calls his publishing sit comics. He, you know, he's one of the writers from Seinfeld and stuff. And uh-huh. he's created this whole line of comics. So, I mean, th- that's very pleasurable because it's just me doing it for by myself, even though, you know, they have to approve it, all these people, but you know, it, it's a lot less, uh, approval heavy than animation is by any means. Right, so, right. Uh, and, you know, I used to do a series of uh, children's books for Hopper Carlin's and a bunch of other places with the DC characters and uh, some of the Marvel characters and whatnot. And that was fun. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've sculpted a little bit back on Swan Princess. They needed someone to do some uh, McCann. So we couldn't find enough people to do them. So I ended up doing, you know, three or four for myself. So that was fun. And, you know, you know, right now it's hard to find personal time, but I would like to uh, do things without knowing that there's a deadline or such, you know. Sure, sure. So we'll see. You know, it, that remains to be seen. We'll see. Yeah. When, when you look back on all the projects you worked on, is there one that bubbles up to the surface? And, and, and believe me, I'm one of these people when I'm asked this question, like, what's your favorite film that you worked on? It's so hard to, you know, it's like asking somebody, you know, who their favorite child is. Yeah. You, you really don't have an answer for it. But but there's always, you know, there's always a film that, you know, or a project that bubbles up, I think, uh, when I talk to colleagues and mm-hmm. people we know around the industry. Is there any one that kind of bubbles up for you that says, wow, I, I had such a great time or I met all these great people and, you know, something like that. Well, all of them have some of that component. Yeah. Some of those components, but the ones that I really like, especially now in retrospect are the ones that, because I go to a lot of comic cons and sit at sure. a table in artist alley and whatnot and sell stuff. Um, but the ones that I keep hearing about over and over that people are just immensely, happy and it just brings back memories and suffers, you know, X-Men evolution uh-huh. uh, and the Swan princess. I mean, you, uh, you'd be, sh- I mean, I'm, I was shocked at how many people would stop and just gush and 
go on and on and about the Swan Princess and such and, uh, and X-Men Evolution, too. But, you know, I think every one of the animated films that have been done over the years has a real sort of core fan base. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's like Dragon's Lair and Space Ace that Don Bluth did sure. those early video games. There, there's some real hardcore fans of those uh, oh, absolutely. projects. I mean, I'm always yeah. shocked to see people come up and say, oh, I saw Cool World when I was a little kid. It's like. Wow, where the hell were your parents? <laughs> I thought you watched that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter how bad or how weird or whatever a project is, there's always some fans somewhere. But I think that the numerous amounts of people that I encounter at these cons and stuff are mostly uh, Swan Princess and X Men Evolution. And I mean, I don't know if you used to go to cons way back when, back in the, uh, you know, uh, before, the, before they became hip. Yeah, exactly. And filled with the corporate culture of yeah, studios. Yeah, exactly. And before <laughs> before they appropriated geek culture, a bunch of dorky dudes hanging out. Right, right. Yeah, I, mean, I was there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I actually did go to San, the San Diego Comic Con. Uh, I think it had to have been in 1983. I think it was because I was working for Bluth. I was right out of Cal Arts, mm -hmm. and, and I and I had been working on. Uh, I think I was in the middle of working on Space Ace and Dragon's Lair had already gone out, so they were doing a lot of stuff at the Bluth table with uh, Dragon's Lair. So. I remember the Comic-Con yeah. before it became corporatized. And, you know, and, but even more important than that, I mean, it, there weren't a lot of young women going to those. Right. It, but it, it, a lot of the women that you see now, a lot of them, and I pat myself on the back, you can almost trace back the reason why they're so into this stuff is through X-Men Evolution. Yeah, 100%. I mean, because that played to a young female audience. And there's an LGBTQ component to it, even uh -huh. though it was kind of buried at the yeah. time. And they all picked up on it. And they just it meant something to them intrinsically. And, you know, and even beyond the fan uh, love for it and stuff, I, I enjoyed that, be, that particular production because being a director and a character designer, I, I was able to... Uh, be very creative. You know, I came up with a lot of character designs that are now beloved for these characters. And, um, you know, and we worked out stories. Me, the producer, and the other couple of directors would sit down at lunch and bang out story ideas and come up with stuff that has now become like Marvel, you know, uh, history and stuff. You know, we, yeah. we were the ones who connected the... Um, a super soldier thing to the X weapon project and um, or weapon X project. And, you know, we were the ones who first made um, uh, Wanda crazy and stuff. You know, we, we put her in a, an asylum, you know, straight jacket in an asylum and stuff. And, and, you know, then after that, they kind of became canon and stuff. So, you know, we were reaching and going for all types of great stuff and coming up with, yeah, and we, I don't know if you're familiar with X-23, but she was part of that show. Oh, yeah. The, you know, so yeah. That was her I know, I know Al John's familiar oh, with yeah. that. The, <laughs> you know, the young, the young, the young Wolverine female. Yeah, yeah, if you, you know, saw the Logan movie. Yeah, the Logan movie. The, the, yeah. The yeah. Oh, girl, yeah, yeah, that okay. was X-23, and, yeah. and she was created for our show. Yeah. And stuff, so, you know, it's so, a, you know that, that has a, a certain, like you said, it, it's just the fact that you know, the creativity was so free and stuff and we we're able to do stuff 
without going too crazy, even though it was a network show, they basically left us alone. And this yeah. was in the days before animatics and stuff. So, you know, you could really get stuff by the network because you'd hand them a stack, you know, like a two foot stack of storyboards and said, okay, give us notes on that. And, you know, they couldn't do that. Yeah. So yeah. now well, it's with animatics and stuff, they can watch it and say, okay, I can give you notes on this now, but. You know, yeah. I, I, in in when you were talking about X Men Evolution and the LGBTQ uh, component, uh, I I can't help but but think to myself, and I'll say this that that I think the the entire industry has become much more uh, diverse. Uh, and inclusive uh, than it was when uh, when we were first starting out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I wasn't quite aware of the lack of diversity because Ralph always was had huge diversity in his ranks. I mean, he had uh, blacks and women and you know whoever. You know, he. he did not give a crap who you were if you could hold a pencil and do it. Yeah, it was all about talent, which yeah. is the way it should be, and which been, which yes. I would would hope is today. It's it's all about women. Yeah, you know, it's it's yeah. all about the talent and uh, and you know uh, having uh, uh, you know diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity, uh, uh, just, just you representation, know, representation. Uh, Really, representation yeah, exactly. yeah, sure. uh, across the board. I think it's board. a much better yeah. thing for everyone involved and stuff. Makes it hard for hard for an old white guy like me. To get <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it is what it is. What are you going to do? Yeah. Well, there are a lot. The, the thing that you brought up, which was really cool, about you know X Men Evolution, as well as the other projects you know you worked on, and we touched on just a little bit. But it's just it's smart, like Gargoyles, who worked on character design for Gargoyles. It's just a smart. Uh, show. I mean, you, you can call it cartoons if you want, but honestly, a lot of us that grew up on this stuff look back at it and go, man, I mean, that spoke to me on so many different levels because yeah. it's smartly written. You have characters that you love and great character design, Steven. I mean, you know, as Thank you it. said, people cosplay as the characters that from, oh, yeah. from Gargoyles I mean, and X-Men. I go Instagram and I con- I'm constantly seeing a rogue you know, or a, uh, you know, Wanda, you know, yeah. you know, whatnot. So it's, amazing it really is and it's cool and you you're uh really generous with the fans i mean i know you do a lot of comic cons as well uh you're doing one this weekend as we record this you're gonna listen they're gonna listen to it after the fact but it's uh it's pretty cool how do you like uh, going to the conventions and getting the love from all the fans out there is is that one is that WonderCon? yes right across around the corner from disneyland fantastic yeah which is the reason why my wife uh well uh, (laughs) steve and i i will tell you if you're at WonderCon which you will be uh do you know uh our uh uh friend um ron diamond is going to be down there showing the the uh, animation show of shows oh yeah and and if and steve do you know ron diamond just peripherally Okay. Well, yeah, if you he's see a Facebook friend, if you see Ron Diamond down there, tell him you listen to the Skull Rock podcast. He's going to have a special gift for you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> he's bringing a bunch of gifts, so I just want to tell all our listeners out there. You know, I will do that. Uh, yeah. No, the conventions right. are a lot of fun. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Especially the bigger ones like this that keep you busy and stuff. You know. I mean, you know the ones with uh, you know slow moving crowds and you know. 
that's a different thing. But generally yeah. speaking, WonderCon is kind of like the baby brother of uh, San, San Diego. Diego. Of the San Diego mm-hmm. Comic-Con, it's, yeah. It's done by the sure. same people, put on right. by the same people, and they know what they're doing. Good people. Yeah. But, yeah, and you know, it's always crowded and to the gills. And, Good. Yeah, it's great. So it's mm-hmm. fun. And plus, you, you know, you're constantly meeting people that, you, know, you meet other artists and stuff, which is always sure. good. But, yeah. Yeah. But you, you know, meeting fans, which is fun. I mean, the, the, see how it impacted their lives and stuff. And, the, you know, it's quite gratifying. You know, it's awesome. it makes it feel like you're not, you're, you're doing something other than just to put money in your bank account. You know? Right. You're, you're enjoying yourself though. Yeah. Yes, yes, of course. And that's what it's all about. It always yeah. drains, well, my, I, it always drains my wallet because I go down artist alley all the time and I get sketch cards and I get signed comic books and then I get posters sure. and it's like, wow, well, uh, I have no more money left, but I did support a bunch of awesome artists. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. No, it, so go it, out yeah, there and see, see Steven, you know, he'll get you a yeah, sketch commissions card. Commissions and stuff. <laughs> and commissions. And whatnot. And yeah. No, I, I mean, I mainly, I mean, what I do there for most for the money is mainly do commissions and stuff. But you know, I know, realize that most people can't afford those, so and I can only get so many done anyways. So I've got a whole load of prints and stuff that I sell for like twenty a piece or fifteen a piece That's or something awesome. like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. Well, I, I would say, uh, Stephen, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the Skull Rock podcast. Uh, I wish you the best of luck at WonderCon. Uh, and, uh, I look forward to having you back, uh, at some point in the future, uh, to talk more, uh, about some of these projects that you've worked on and some of your art. Good. I love that. Sure. So thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Your attention, please. (laughs) Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Wow, man. Another great interview. And once again, we could go on and on talking to Steve about his work. Absolutely. I mean, I loved uh, I loved hearing some of those stories. And again, I just marvel at the fact that you marvel. Right you from, marvel. You said yes, marvel. I marvel. I said marvel. <laughs> but I do marvel. I do marvel at the fact that he went right out of, as a senior in high school. I mean, while he was in a, a, a senior in high school, started working at Bakshi Studios. I mean, just mind boggling. And it just goes to show you, it's really, you know, going into the animation business. It's all about your talent, mm-hmm. nothing else. It doesn't matter whether you, you know, went to an art school or got a degree. In fact, most of the studios don't, they really, the hiring people, they don't care what degree you have, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. it, it's about your portfolio. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and, and I have to tell you that that's, you know, that's the bottom line here. Uh, yeah. But really great stories. I, I enjoyed talking with Steve. Yeah, I'm going to be rewatching X-Men Evolution on Disney Plus and, of course, Cool World. You know, it's been a year since I've seen it, but I think it's worth the rewatch just so I can say, hey, look, you know, Steve, I'm, I'm watching your work again. And, and how cool is it, um, you know, to have him on the show and rewatch that? Yeah. I, and I, I actually want to watch American Pop. Yeah. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen that one. Man, there's there's so many things. So, yeah, you know, he's got so much work. So we'll we'll link uh, 
to his website, by the way, which is great. And you can check out all the work that he's doing, all the commercial stuff he's doing as well. And uh, wherever he's, uh, you know, showing off, uh, you know, and I say showing off wherever he, he's appearing uh, because he's just a regular on the Comic-Con style circuit. So, uh, you know, if you're out there, tell him you heard us, uh, heard his interview on Skull Rock Podcast. I know he'll totally love it. And once again, gang, uh, we would appreciate if you be so kind to leave us those reviews there on all the podcast platforms iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify. We're everywhere. And Stitcher Radio, too. Sorcerer Radio Network. Thank you so much. So just leave us those reviews. We'd appreciate it. Once again, you love Disney and pop culture. You know where to follow us Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those social media outlets. You can also send us those emails because we love it. Uh, we get a lot of show uh, ideas from you, right? And we want to know what you're you're uh, wondering about, what kind of questions you might have for Dave or our guest. Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. Dave? Well, as always, Aljon, peace and love to everybody out there. I hope you go out and have a fantastic uh, week out here in the Southwest. It's going to be a broiling 95. Uh, and uh, be safe, be kind, and we will see you again next week right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com.